Well, welcome once again to Trinity Grace. We're so glad that you're here, especially if you're a guest with us this morning. Many of you know that Trinity Grace is a new church for Northwest San Antonio, and we believe that Jesus wants to meet people where they're at, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad things have gotten in your life. We believe that Jesus wants to meet you in your brokenness. He wants to meet you in your doubts and in your questions. But we also believe that Jesus doesn't leave people where they're at. He wants to bring renewal and holiness to your life this morning. Jesus wants to take us somewhere on a journey towards wholeness and fulfillment and freedom from sin. Many of you will know that we've been working our way through a series on the book of 1 Peter, and we'll plan on wrapping up that series in the next two weeks. But today we're going to be looking at a standalone passage, kind of a, a preacher's choice, if you will. So if you've got a Bible, you'll want to turn to Matthew chapter 18. It's also printed for you in the worship folder. One of my friends, while he was in seminary, was hired by someone in his neighborhood to do some yard work. And my friend was doing things like raking and bagging leaves. He was trimming hedges. He was pulling weeds. And one of the things that he was hired to do was pressure wash the side of their house. And the owners of the house had this brand new pressure washer that they had bought, like one that was directly out of the box for the first time my friend used it that day. And before you use a new pressure washer, many of you will likely know, you need to put oil in the engine. The problem was, my friend couldn't figure out where to put the oil. There were lots of different valves on this pressure washer, and he had no clue which valve was for the oil, so he just guessed. And he poured oil in one of the valves. So he hooks the pressure washer up, he turns it on, and boom, it's working. He sprang down the house and it's working great. And then all of a sudden it starts making a weird screeching noise and it just shuts down. And so my friend uh, tries starting it back up again and he can't get it started. And soon he comes to the realization, oh no, I didn't put the oil in the correct spot. And the pressure washer had basically been running without engine oil for a number of minutes and he ruined this completely new uh, pressure washer. Because what's happening inside of the engine is there's movement and friction going on, as many of you likely know. And the heat and friction of the engine needs oil. It needs lubrication. Otherwise, it gets so hot that the moving parts inside of the engine actually meld together and lock up and ruin everything. And that's exactly what happened. And that's a good image to have in our minds as we consider forgiveness and relationships this morning. Because every relationship that you're in is going to experience conflict. It experiences heat and friction. Two people butting up against each other. You'll get tired and you'll get angry. And there'll be miscommunication. And there's often distrust in relationships. Thinking that someone else might have a hidden agenda. You get mean and rude and moody. And this is just the normal stuff of relationships. Heat and friction. And a gospel-centered forgiveness is the lubrication within the conflict of relationships. If you don't have forgiveness as a regular operating element of your relationships, they will inevitably get overheated and lock up and ultimately be destroyed. Forgiveness is the thing that keeps relationships working in our lives. And so with that in mind, let's take a look at our passage this morning from Matthew chapter 18 that speaks to forgiveness and relationships. You follow along as I read beginning in verse 21. 
Then Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he had paid the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Well, this is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. I wonder if you were asked to define Christianity with one word, what word you would choose. There's lots of options that come to mind. I think of words like grace or mercy, renewal. Maybe some of you think of obedience or theology. Those are words that immediately come to mind. But it would be hard to choose a better word to describe Christianity than the word forgiveness. It's a word that really encapsulates the heart of Christianity, both in our vertical relationship with God and in our horizontal relationship with one another. It's a beautiful aspect of the Christian life, forgiveness is. But while it's beautiful, you know as well as I that it can also be challenging. C.S. Lewis once said, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. I think we can all resonate with Lewis's sentiment to some degree. Forgiveness is a beautiful idea. We admire it when we see it. It's an action that garners lots of respect and attention when other people see it done. Forgiveness is something that almost everyone is able to pay lip service to. We even agree that forgiveness is the key to any good relationship. In fact, it's required if we want relationships to survive Relationships cannot survive in a fallen world without forgiveness. Yet, forgiveness can also be one of the hardest aspects of Christianity, especially if you've ever been the one who's been wronged by another person. Forgiveness sounds really great until you're the one who has to extend it to someone who has hurt you. A while back, Christian author Anne Lamott was asked in an interview, she was asked, what's the hardest part about being a Christian? And she responded, I'm one of those Christians who just has an awful time with forgiveness, which is like 80% of Christianity, she says. It's, not, it's just not my strong suit. I struggle so hard with it. She also has a chapter on forgiveness in her great book entitled Traveling Mercies, where she talks with humor 
about forgiveness. And she begins by talking about forgiveness as something that has to be learned. It's something that must be practiced as a follower of Christ. And here's what she says at one point in that chapter. She says, I went around saying for a long time that I'm not one of those Christians who's heavily into forgiveness, that I am one of the other kind. But even though it was funny and actually true, it started to be too painful to stay this way. I began to feel punished by my unwillingness to forgive. By the time I decided to become one of the ones who is heavily into forgiveness, it was like trying to become a marathon runner in middle age. Everything inside of me either recoiled as from a hot flame or laughed a little too hysterically. In the midst of her humor, Lamont says something profound. She says that she began to feel punished by her unwillingness to forgive. And she highlights that in order for us to experience whole relationships, we have got to be able to receive and to give forgiveness. But this can be really difficult. I mean, it's easy to talk about forgiveness, but it's another thing altogether to begin forgiving others who have hurt us. It's hard to start thinking about how to forgive a spouse who has used words to devastate us. Parents, for the mistakes that they have made and for the ways that they were absent in our life as we grew up. Children who push our patience to the brink. It's hard to think about forgiving relatives who maybe abused you emotionally spiritually, even physically. Employers who are hard and unfair. Relatives who come and don't treat you or care for you the way that you expect them to. When we start thinking about our relationships and the cruel things that have been done to us, forgiveness begins to sound like the last thing we want to do. But it's something that we need to learn especially if we want any hope of experiencing life-giving relationships in this life. What do you do when someone hurts you? What do you do when someone wrongs you, when someone just simply irritates you? How can we begin to practice forgiveness in our lives? This morning, we're going to break down the idea of forgiveness by looking at three things, the foundation of forgiveness, the implementation of forgiveness, and the peace of forgiveness. The foundation, the implementation, and the peace. First, let's look at the foundation of forgiveness. One pastor I know says that there are some things you should never try without the gospel. And forgiveness is one of those things. In order to become someone who forgives others, you first got to embrace the forgiveness that you've received yourself. And this is really the main idea from our passage this morning. It begins in verse 21. When Peter comes up to Jesus and asks him a question, he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? You got to know Peter is thinking that surely there's a limit to forgiveness. Surely there are some things beyond his ability to forgive. And Peter is even willing to think radically here. You need to know that. Forgiving someone seven times would have been radical in Peter's mind above and beyond what he had been taught in that day and age. Because in that day and age, rabbis recommended that forgiving another person up to three times would fulfill your duty of forgiveness. Basically had a cap on forgiveness. You were extremely forgiving person if you could do it three times. But what we see from Jesus is an even more radical idea than Peter has. 
In verse 22, Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven or 77 times. In other words, Jesus is telling Peter here, don't even start counting. When it comes to forgiveness, it's got to be unlimited. And then Jesus illustrates this idea with a parable, which is just an imaginary story with a spiritual point. And he tells the story of a king who completely forgives a servant a debt of 10,000 talents, which was an astronomical amount. A talent in the first century is what an average worker would have earned in a half a lifetime in that culture. So this was a debt that would have taken 5,000 lifetimes to repay. It would amount to billions of dollars in our current culture, an astronomical amount. And this servant is forgiven that debt. He's the recipient of unbelievable forgiveness. And it would have been jaw-dropping to the original hearers to hear this story. Let me ask you a question. What would you expect from someone who receives this type of forgiveness? Well, we would expect that type of forgiveness to renew and to transform a person. We would expect that type of forgiveness to bring a sense of joy and a generosity into that person's life. But what we see from the story Jesus tells is that this servant doesn't get it. This forgiveness doesn't transform him. It never takes root in his life. And because he doesn't appreciate how he's just been forgiven, he's not able to move out and forgive others in his life. We see the servant go out and demand payment of a debt owed to him. And it's an insignificant debt in comparison to the debt that he had just been forgiven. And I wonder what you think about that. When Jesus told this parable, it would have been brand new to his original listeners and it would have stirred anger in their hearts. They would have thought, how dare this servant not forgive after he'd received so much forgiveness? You know, what kind of person is this? How twisted must the servant be? How evil? But here's the thing Jesus is doing. He's trying to get us to see that we are more often than not the servant in this story. Because truth be told, we are in God's debt. He's the king to whom we owe an astronomical debt to. This is presupposed in this story. We're meant to place ourselves in the servant's role here. And if we can begin to grasp how much we've been forgiven, we can begin to be the kind of people who extend forgiveness to others. But this is easier said than done. Some of you are rightfully thinking at this point, but you don't know what's been done to me. Are you telling me to just move on? Are you telling me that I need to forget what's happened to me to simply sweep it under the rug? And this is where we need to understand a few things about the nature of forgiveness before we move on. And the most important thing we've got to understand about forgiveness, and if you don't remember anything else this morning, I want you to remember this, is that when it comes to forgiveness, someone always has to absorb the cost. Someone always absorbs the cost. What this means is that the wrongs aren't simply disregarded. They're not just forgotten. They're not downplayed. In order to offer forgiveness to someone, the wrong has to be absorbed. And this is why the more you've been hurt, the harder forgiveness is. Because the bigger the cost that needs to be absorbed by you. And this is really modeled for us by God himself. I mean, think about it. In forgiving us and forgiving you, God does not develop some kind of amnesia. 
He doesn't downplay our debt. He doesn't sweep our mistakes under the rug. No, the wrongs are still real. Our struggles are still there. They still need to be paid for, but they've been absorbed by another, namely Jesus himself. And in much the same way, when we forgive others, the wrong is still real, the pain is still sharp, but we're deciding to absorb the wrong that's been done to us. In other words, we're refusing to make another pay a debt that they legitimately owe. Forgiveness is you taking the hit for the very person who sinned against you and then promising not to make that person pay for it. Think of it this way. I have a friend who moved into a new house in Charlotte. And the first day they were there, they had some folks from the neighborhood come up and introduce themselves. It was like the first 24 hours after they had moved in sort of thing. And the neighbor's kids came and were playing with a ball on their front porch. And before long, one of the kids throws the ball through my friend's front window and shatters it to pieces. And the mom is embarrassed and she's terribly sorry. And she apologizes profusely to my friends that have just moved into the house. Now, what does forgiveness look like in this case? Well, restitution would be asking the neighbor to pay for the window that they broke. But forgiveness in this case looks like my friend saying, we're not going to force you to pay for this. We're going to take care of it ourselves. But my friend, he's still got a broken window at his house. Who's going to pay for it then? Well, he's got to be the one that absorbs the cost. He's going to pay for it. He's going to go to the store. He's going to buy the new glass. He's going to install it himself. Because forgiveness is always absorbing the infraction yourself and promising not to hold the other accountable for it. So when you say, I forgive you, you take the hit and promise not to make the other person pay for it. So when the king in our passage forgives this guy a debt of approximately, let's say, $6 billion, if you're making an average income in America these days, the king is taking a $6 billion hit. He's now out of that much money that he would have had. Now, every one of us has felt the heat and friction of a relationship. You've been betrayed by a friend. You've been hurt by your spouse. Your children have done something to wound you, maybe especially your older children. And when that happens, you've got an opportunity to forgive. But what usually happens, if you're like me, is that you choose instead to get even or to exact revenge. Or you pretend to ignore the fact that they hurt you. And the question is, why is that our instinct? Why is that our instinct? Because we know that truly forgiving them is going to cost us something. It's going to be painful. Because when we forgive someone, you're making a promise to them to not bring their offense up again as leverage. And we do this all the time. You're promising to them, you're saying, I'm going to quit keeping score. I won't make you pay for this. But we aren't always consistent with our promises, are we? Because even though we claim to forgive the people who hurt us, we still want to make them pay for what they've done, right? And we do it in a lot of manipulative and quiet ways. So we say, yeah, I forgive you. But then we give them the silent treatment. I forgive you, or then we throw out passive aggressive comments. I forgive you, and then we're just a bit cold toward them, withdrawing relationship. 
We hold something over their head and keep bringing up their past mistake to control them. And you have to see that that is not forgiveness. When we do that, we're basically saying, look, I'll pay for most of it, but I still want you to pay for some of it too. I still want you to pay for how you've hurt me. And that's not real forgiveness because forgiveness is absorbing all of the cost. Now, before we move on to our third and final point, I just want to nuance this real quick. If we had more time, we could look at other passages in the Bible that round out this idea. But forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. Forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. Jesus is here saying that forgiving someone is non-negotiable. It is the way of the cross. It's what followers of Jesus do. You're not allowed to withhold forgiveness and harbor bitterness in your life if you claim to be a Christian. But what if you're in a physically or sexually abusive situation? What if the other person who's sinning against you refuses to admit their sin and ask for your forgiveness? What if you're in a dangerous situation? Well, you're still called by Jesus to have an attitude of forgiveness towards them. You're still called to move towards that offender in love in ways that you're able to, but that's not the same thing as entering back in to an abusive relationship. Forgiveness is not saying that you condone an action. Forgiveness does not mean putting yourself back into danger again. Your attempt at loving them actually may involve serious confrontation and separation altogether. All I want to say here is that the call of forgiveness and the act of reconciliation aren't always the same thing. And it's an important distinction to make. Okay. But imagine that you're beginning to see how costly forgiveness actually is. And knowing that forgiveness is absorbing the hit for the very person who hurt you is painful and costly. But think for a minute about the alternative to forgiveness. What's the alternative? If we don't forgive them, then what we're doing is slowly killing our heart and soul from the inside out. In a very real sense, we've got to forgive for our own spiritual health. A lack of forgiveness always breeds cynicism and bitterness and anger in our heart and life. As we refuse to forgive other people, what we're doing is allowing the offender to hold us in bondage. We actually get a picture of what that looks like to withhold forgiveness in the parable Jesus tells in verses 32 to 34. It says, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Look, like the unforgiving servant in this parable, we oftentimes find ourselves enslaved and imprisoned by our lack of forgiveness. We all make our own prisons by our lack of forgiveness. If we refuse to forgive another person, then bitterness begins to define us and permeate all areas of our life. We are bent on getting even, on paying someone back. It's what Anne Lamott is getting at when she says, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. It will destroy us slowly from within. But as followers of Jesus, forgiveness is actually possible because we're able to recognize the forgiveness that we've received in Christ and then move out in forgiveness towards others. 
And this will bring peace to your heart and spiritual growth in your life. After all, who am I to withhold forgiveness from someone else, me who has received so much forgiveness from God, who has been forgiven an astronomical debt? I'll close with a beautiful story that highlights how difficult forgiveness can be, but also highlights the freedom that it brings. It's a story told by Corey Tinboom. Here's what she says. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the crowd. One moment I saw the overcoat and the next a blue uniform. One moment I saw the brown hat and the next a visored cap with a skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. And this man had been a guard at Ravensbrück, the concentration camp where we were sent. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he said. I was a guard there. He did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I'd like to hear it from your lips as well. His hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I who sins every day had to be forgiven, and I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow and terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. And I knew I had to do it. Jesus said, forgive others as I have forgiven you. Still, I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, regardless of the temperature of the heart. And I prayed, Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder. It raced down my arm. It sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth flooded my whole body and I wept. I wept before this man. I forgive you, I cried. I forgive you, brother, with all of my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands the former guard and the former prisoner, one murderer hugging another. And I had never known God's love so intensely as I did in that moment. What in the world could empower someone to forgive like that? How is that possible? Well, it only comes as we begin to grasp the depth and the beauty of God's forgiveness towards us in Christ Jesus. It comes as we see Jesus as the one who came to absorb the cost that the offender owed. 
And because Jesus came to absorb the cost that our sin deserves, he's able to offer us free and full forgiveness, able to invite us back into relationship with him. You are completely known and forgiven by God through Jesus. And the more we believe that truth, the better you and I will be at demonstrating forgiveness to others. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for the way that you have come into this world, not to condemn, not to judge, not to throw stones, but to absorb the cost that we have created. Lord, you are one who has come to forgive us completely and fully. And we pray this morning that as we come to savor that forgiveness more deeply, that you would change our hearts from the inside out. It's in your name we pray. Amen.